Welcome to Everyone's for Connectivity, but what's it for? Who owns the data and who controls privacy? Hi, I'm Fred Fishkin. Thank you for joining in to watch or listen, and we hope you're staying safe. This event is made possible in part by support from the Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. Find out more at www.motoetf.com. Our provocateur for the discussion is Michael Senna, well-known transportation expert, consultant, and publisher of the Dispatcher Newsletter. Our panel of sharks includes digital age pioneer, author, and consultant Brad Templeton, Roger Lanteau, Director, Automotive Connectivity, Connected Mobility sorry, at Strategy Analytics, and the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Our moderator is Compass Transportation and Technology President and Founder, Dick Mudge. Dick? Yeah, let's get going. Um, Michael, um, I look forward to having you define all the questions and issues we should be uh, talking about. Just make sure you don't give all the answers. Thank you, Dick. Two-way vehicle connectivity is a three-sided coin that everyone wants to own. Two-way vehicle connectivity has three facets. Two of them are mainly of interest to vehicle OEMs and their suppliers. These are vehicle-centric and customer-centric. Vehicle-centric connectivity includes functions such as emergency notification, logistics tracking, and over-the-air updating. Customer-centric connectivity includes many services that are also provided by mobile apps outside of the vehicle, such as music streaming, workshops, service booking, traffic notifications, and car sharing applications. Two-way vehicle connectivity today is a major competitive factor for the OEMs. The third vehicle connectivity facet is principally of interest to public sector traffic management authorities. It is focused on communicating warnings to vehicles and providing guidance on which roads to use in case of traffic congestion or emergencies. The public authorities view these roadway-centric functions as their domain, and vehicle-to-infrastructure and vehicle-to-vehicle communications as the tools to accomplish the job. They're grouped together under the term V2X. This third facet is not a competitive factor for the OEMs. If it is legislated, V2X will not distinguish one OEM from another since every OEM will have to include it. Vehicle OEMs each have their own unique views on why they are implementing connectivity and how they intend to benefit from spending the time, effort, and money integrating the systems into their vehicles and building a service ecosystem. Some of them, like GM and Volvo, started with the idea that it enhanced their safety image. Some, like BMW and Ford, believed they would be able to use the data they collected for developing completely new services. Some, like Toyota, saw it as a way to deliver a better driving experience. For Tesla, connectivity is a fundamental part of its business. Today, most OEMs understand that an unconnected car is a lost opportunity for adding value to both their customers and to their own businesses. But make no mistake, their job is selling cars, and they compete fiercely to do so. There seems to be an unbridgeable gap of trust between the public sector and the automotive industry. Emissions, fuel economy, safety, space, noise. There's so much about cars and trucks for politicians and bureaucrats to dislike, to legislate against, and to tax. Even worse, if the automotive industry appears to be encroaching on a domain that has been served by the public, public sector, such as collection of traffic flow data, the delivery of roadway warnings, or the provision of emergency services, the public sector reacts by claiming the right to restrict or at least regulate those private sector initiatives. European eCall is a case in point. In the 1990s, wireless telephone systems and the global positioning system combined to offer a way to save lives in the event of a car crash by immediately notifying a car center, call center operated by the OEM, who would then notify the official emergency providers. GM OnStar was first to offer this, followed by BMW, Volvo Cars, and PSA, and eventually all the OEMs. 
the European Commission decided it was the sole right of public authorities to provide emergency services, and in 2002 began a process to ensure that all emergency notifications went directly to the public safety answering points, or PSAPs. Rather than just setting a standard, the Commission proposed a hardware solution, an in-band modem generating a short data message inside a 112 phone call. After 16 years, the Commission succeeded in mandating its in-band modem solution. All new type-approved cars starting on the 1st of April 2018 had to include the possibility of sending an EU e-call via the 112 voice channel. But the OAMs succeeded in keeping their third-party services, which most of them still use. As with EU eCall, with V2X, the public sector has gone beyond developing standards and allowing the private sector to develop solutions. The public sector has been promoting an an in-vehicle solution communicating with roadside units for sending and receiving data messages. When V2X was first proposed in the late 1990s, digital short-range communications seemed to be the most desirable wireless technique for the in-vehicle systems and the associated roadside units. The technology was popularized uh, for tow collection. Most importantly, it was viewed as free, like a 112 emergency call. But over the past 20 years, cellular technologies have progressed, and any advantages that 802.11p Wi-Fi-based technologies had appear to be matched and surpassed by cellular systems. Then there is the simple fact that short-range communications do not address the vehicle-centric and the customer-centric functions. Like EUE call, it is a one-trick horse. In some parts of the world, there is a pediment upon which the three-sided coin rests. The pediment represents the combined issues of personal privacy and data ownerships. Countries within the European Union have written what is called the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, into their laws, which, among other things, means that individuals, not companies or governments, are the owners of their personal data. Service providers to the automotive industry within the EU, such as motor clubs and insurance companies, are using this right to insist that vehicle owners, not the OEMs, should determine which companies provide them with services. Assisted by the European Commission, they're also proposing in-vehicle solutions to the OEMs in addition to developing standards for message routing and content. The public transport management sector has concentrated the debate about connectivity on whether and how V2X should be provided and centered the debate on technology. The private automotive sector and their suppliers have concentrated the debate about connectivity on delivering value to customers in order to enhance their business competitiveness. Service providers have now entered the debate with the claim that they, not the OEMs, are the true guardians of personal privacy. But the debate is not really about technology, nor is it about who delivers the best value for the money or the most privacy. It is about control. The issue is who controls what is being installed in vehicles and who controls the messages that are being sent and received. The public sector is promoting a short-range communication solution in which the necessary roadside units are controlled by the public sector. Does this approach provide the best service to citizens or is it desired because governments want to make sure that all data that are transmitted to and from the vehicles are controlled by the public and not the private sector? Will data connectivity managed by private companies, whether they are the vehicle OEMs or IT companies like Google, provide better services in all three areas of connectivity? Can the private sector be trusted to deliver services without exercising undue control over its customers by collecting and using their data? It is time that all of these connectivity issues are brought out into the open and discussed together, not individually, because the best solution will not be reached by the toss of a coin. Thank you, Michael. Um, I hope the best solution will be reached by this panel. That's the objective we provided for ourselves. Um, First, the first shark I'll call on is Roger, since you're the 
brand new shark to this group. So you get you get a first crack at Michael. Thank you, Dick. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, uh, that's certainly quite a bit of uh, chum to churn through. Uh, I think there, there's a more fundamental issue at, at stake here. Uh, I, I sensed a, a hint of a unifying theme being uh, mandated uh, connectivity to vehicles with uh, e-call being cited for Europe and uh, B2B uh, being cited for the U.S. Um, you, you forgot Contran 245 in Brazil, which, of course, has gone by the wayside, but that was a stolen vehicle tracking and recovery uh, mandate that uh, was regarded ultimately after probably a couple hundred million dollars being uh, thrown away by the industry as invading privacy uh, was the reason for its being rejected uh, ultimately. Um, but I, I think there's a more fundamental issue in the automotive industry, which is almost all of the value for vehicle connectivity resides with the car manufacturer and or the dealer. Ever since the onset of the smartphone, the consumer is looking at connectivity as being in the palm of their hand. They, they don't need the, the connection in the car. They're bringing the, their connection into the car uh, when they enter that vehicle. So basically, we have kind of a tough sell as an industry if we do, in fact, as an industry, believe that connectivity is in the industry's best interest. Now, you've raised a whole another, uh, I don't know what, what analogy to use here, kettle of fish, uh, uh, nest of hornets uh, on the ownership of data. And certainly in Europe, they are wrestling with that. And uh, that battle for control of the customer is unfolding with the aftermarket repair uh, companies and uh, insurance companies and car clubs, etc. cetera. Uh, they all uh, want to uh, plug directly into those connectivity platforms in the car, supersede the uh, third party, the, the uh, OEM's uh, connectivity uh, offering. This is aside from the direct connection to the PSAP. And um, it's it, it's a bit of a mess, uh, and it's a mess that's been brought on by regulatory authorities and by a mandate, uh, and the reason it's a mess is because more or less that technology that they mandated was not just the in-band modem. They more or less specified 2G, and of course, not all car makers use 2G modems, although we know car makers love to take the cheapest module they can get for anything they're putting in a car, uh, but in this instance, there are millions of cars with eCall, with 2G, and the GSMA has notified the EU that they are looking to turn off the 2G networks across Europe by 2025. And uh, the German BDA has said, oh, yeah, well, we'd like you to keep them uh, open and functioning until 2035, GSMA. Uh, so you've got a, a, a bit of a conflict there. Uh, this is aside from the fact that the EU uh, would like to shift from an in-band modem uh, data over voice approach to a voice over data Volte uh, technology, which would make more sense in a world of LTE and 5G. So the EU is in a world of hurt, again, in the context of consumers are literally typically not coming onto the dealer lot or going to the OEM's website looking for a car with a connection. It's not a priority right now. Now, that may change. Okay. Uh, it would be nice to have a market-driven solution. Uh, Tesla has put that market-driven solution into the market, and the market so far seems to be saying thumbs up. Uh, that, that value proposition is built on the over-the-air uh, software updates. Uh, interestingly, it's not focused at all on, on an e-call uh, capability, and also it's uh, essentially uh, built also around adding value to the car after the sale, which is a sort of an industry holy grail, completely breaking the industry paradigm of sell it and forget it, and sell it and render it immediately obsolete. So Tesla's, you know, breaking down all the barriers, completely disrupting the industry, and they're doing it with connectivity. But this is a market-driven approach, not a mandated approach. Right. Uh, exactly. Oh, crying out loud. <laughs> we don't need connections sometimes, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so could we, Michael, do you, what do you have to come back and – uh, Everything, or, or everything make, go ahead. Everything that Roger has said is is supporting all of the points that I've made in this, particularly the one that I that I'd like to highlight. Uh, I, I did mention that that for for Tesla connectivity is fundamental. Um, you know, if anybody has a question about why why we need long range connectivity, it's called there's three letters. It's OTA, over the air updating, of of 
firmware in the vehicle and software in the vehicle. This is a this is a major point of all of the OEMs. The only car OEM today that's really doing this and doing it completely is Tesla. And there are reasons for it. There are many reasons for it. And, and I hope some some of our sharks will be able to identify those. But this is from the from the standpoint of the OEMs, this is the it's not a holy grail. It is the objective that will that needs to be achieved if if the OEMs are going to achieve the the the, the goals of of their connectivity. They've spent a lot of money in putting systems in the car of creating ecosystems and it's not just for helping roadside assistance it's not just an emergency call it goes well beyond that yeah let's move on i you know, yeah. i mean I, yeah roger raised the debate issue about do you have a market-oriented solution which is kind of tesla or are the europeans the system that michael described is much more government-oriented you know brad i'm sure you have opinions on all of that yeah, the, um, the there's actually, well, I mean, again, there are many, many types of connectivity being talked about. By the way, Michael, I'll technically correct you. Unless you buy Tesla's premium connectivity package, the over-the-air updates go over short-range communications. They, you have to pay if you want to do them over the cellular. Otherwise, it's done in your garage over your own Wi-Fi. However, uh, this is the kind of connectivity that indeed people want in cars. Uh, in fact, I will say that for computer security reasons, we want as little connectivity in the driving systems of a car as we can possibly get. And when I go out to the uh, computer security world and I say, you know what the car people want to do? They want every car, which is a 1,500 kilogram robot wandering the streets to exchange complex messages right into the core of its driving system with all the other random cars it encounters and random pieces of roadside infrastructure. And they will laugh. They will just laugh at the idea that anyone thinks that that can be done without a great security risk. And because it's 1,500 kilogram robots, it's a serious problem. In fact, I think cars really should talk only to their headquarters and they should talk with fear of their headquarters because their headquarters might be compromised. It might be trying to take them over. And that is not the approach you see when you see almost all the car connectivity discussion going on, the V2V and V2X connectivity in particular. Um, the truth is the value of short range communications, very long, very, sorry, very short latency communications, that's what that's really for, is actually surprisingly minimal. Uh, because you need to make cars safe enough without it. You're never going to get, I put up my, my funny graphic here, uh, that you're never going to, oops, that's not the thing we want to put there. You're never going to get, you're never going to get um, all the deer to wear transponders. I mean, unless you can. 20% of all accidents uh, are with deer. You won't get all the pedestrians to wear transponders. And you won't even get all the car to wear transponders. And so you have to solve the problem with sensors. And what do you know? The self-driving car industry is working to make sensors cheap and effective and will do so long before. But let's also look at how people use vehicles today and use connectivity in vehicles. In the back of every Uber I've ever seen, in fact, on every transit vehicle I see, people are at, sitting down, hunkered down, staring at their phone. That's their view of connectivity while they travel. And they like to have their connectivity in the form that they've chosen, the music and the services all configured by them. They hate the little connectivity box in the back of the New York taxi cab seat when you get into that taxi and it starts trying to advertise to you and blaring to you. They don't want the connectivity as designed by the vehicle. They want the connectivity as they have chosen it in the device that they get a new one of every two years. And anytime you have a competition between something you get a new one of every two years and something that's expected to last for two decades, like a car, um, the small two year, uh, every two-year box is guaranteed to win. Um, so it's it's kind of a false chase. And the other thing that you um, you, you see, if you look at uh, Google's Firefly prototype, which was the small two-person prototype they made, if you look at the Cruise Bolt prototype that they advertised, if you look at the Cruise Origin, their new prototype vehicle, you don't actually see things in there for users to be interacting. The companies who are actually building the self-driving technology have no interest in V2V. They have no interest in V2X. Uh, their main interest is the same thing you get from the car connectivity that works today, which is called Waze. And Waze is done through that little thing you get a new one of every two years, and it's free, and it tells you about hazards on the road up ahead. It doesn't do it with the accuracy that it could because it doesn't need to. But all this technology has already been built there and built from the ground up rather than being mandated. Uh, how many of you are using your 25-year-old cell phone? Well, DSRC was laid out about 25 years ago. And uh, it's very unlikely to me that anything that was mandated in communications 25 years ago will ever be tremendously successful in a world where things change every year. Michael, do you have any 
reactions to those comments about uh, you know the, the you know that no one really cares about V to V or V to X. Well, I, I, mean, I Brad and I have had a, a couple of discussions about the the point of view of the vehicle OEMs, and I'm 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 very I'm certain that in that Brad has a point of view of those who would like to use cars as a medium for providing services, for helping customers and doing all of these things. And that, that's great. I mean, I, that, that, that perspective is very important because if you ignore that perspective, you're going to, the OEMs are going to be providing services that nobody wants, which is not the case. I mean, the fact is that most, if not all cars today, are, have a connectivity component built into them. And they're all pretty much the same. They all have similar types of, of ecosystems, and they provide a, a full range of services. And one of them is traffic information. And it does, some of them use Waze, some of them are based on Google, some of them are based on other types of systems. There's lots of opportunities, and there are lots of different approaches that can be taken. The point is, if if you an OEM wants to take an approach or if a group of OEMs want to take an approach, but that approach is, is closed off by public, public authorities, whether those public authorities are the United States, in Canada, in, in Russia, in EU, in China, it doesn't matter. If those public authorities provide a solution which is mandated, we have a very different type of, of integration requirement. The, the point is that, that, as I said, it's the control of the data. It's who is providing that information. Many public authorities just cringe at the concept of using, having ways to decide what customers are going to be seeing and, and using in their cars. Others, and I'm, I'm working in a country where the, where the public authority is a little bit more open and working very closely with not only with ways, but here and, and several, of, several of the INRICs, trying to provide the best possible solution for the, for the customers. There are different approaches in different countries as well. So I think... Whoa, 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 whoa. I no, get I, a chance to... I can in there. Come on, whoa. I don't know. We have to... Yeah. And, and we want to get in. <laughs> Sorry, Roger. Yeah. Go ahead. I guess I, 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 I have... Um, uh, I'm not part of this fight, I guess. I'm just not uh, part of it because I guess the, the thing that I'm most interested about is providing uh, mobility to to everyone and, and uh, basically uh, leveling the mobility playing field. And, and that probably means that, in fact, uh, we, at least for some who can't own cars, uh, the, the owning of the car is not the issue. The issue is, is what are the mobility machines that are going to be put out there uh, to provide the, that mobility? And part of the issue there and, and putting that out there, one of the key tenets of even having a, a concept of affordable mobility that is of high quality for almost anybody is to basically be able to do it uh, without two things. One, one, without great investment in infrastructure and overhead associated with that. And the second piece is if you're not going to provide the free labor yourself to provide the driving, uh, get away, find a way, develop a way to provide free mobility or very inexpensive mobility to do the driving. And that's where the automation comes in. And if one really wants to do that and do that safely and one looks at where communication fits in, I sort of am in a point where it has to be the intelligence has to be in the vehicle. It has to go out there and drive defensively, and it has to be able to do that affordably with maybe just one vehicle out there, and then with two, and then with four, and then with eight and 16, and then grow to market. And it has to do that affordably, essentially, from the beginning. So if, in fact, you're going to put on top of that, now I have to do communications, that's like saying I have to build a separate automated highway for it. You know, we went through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts until 2004 or five, thinking that we needed a, a exclusive roadway for automated transportation. 
finally somebody said, my goodness, if you do it and you put the intelligence in one vehicle and it goes out and uses the infrastructure that exists and doesn't ask anything from anybody except for maybe paint, then maybe it has the opportunity to to start and become a mobility system that would, in fact, provide a more level playing field of mobility for all sectors of the society. So that's where I come at it. So in a sense, yes, communications, of course. If I'm going to have a fleet as a fleet owner, absolutely I'm going to have communications. I have to manage my fleet. I have to do it optimally. I have to have customer service. I have to deliver value and so on. Of course, I'm going to do that with with communications. But I'm going to do that as it grows, as it scales from the the entity that's providing that mobility, as opposed to saying it's got to be required of everybody, da da da, and have this gizmo or that gizmo. So I'm sort of outside this fight. Thank you. This goes back a little bit to what Michael talked about. In Europe, there's a, a pressure to have a centralized mandate about the type of controls. In the U.S., that's not the issue. Um, uh, I mean, so, so far, the U.S. Has, uh, has avoided that. It's up to each of the companies to do what they feel like. Is that a good long-term solution or not? Well, I, I w- what I wanted to say before I so rudely interrupted Alan was uh, <laughs> that uh, it sounded from uh, Michael's preamble that he was talking about uh, the, the public ownership of, of vehicle data. And, I, and he alluded to it again in his uh, last comment. And uh, I'm not sure anybody's too excited about that prospect. I mean, the, the single thing that might send people willingly into Google's arms might be government ownership of vehicle data. Uh, I And I actually, I think the whole purpose of Vita-X is for there not to be any reservoir of data. Uh, it's just for d- data to be flowing uh, and not not stored. Uh, but there is an issue with, with data, and there's a lot of misconceptions, I think. And I've yet to see a car company really achieve what would seem to make sense from a sort of an automotive data hygiene standpoint. Uh, some companies have tried, like BMW, uh, to give the customer, and I'm a BMW owner, and I have a portal where I can see at least some of the data that they're gathering from my car. I'm not convinced that that's all the data that they're gathering. And uh, I have some ability, or I will once they fully launch BMW car data in the U.S., the ability to identify which marketing partners I'm willing to allow them to share my data with. Uh, so there you have transparency and you have control, which in my, to my mind equals trust. The problem is we've all seen the stories about the journalists, you know, hacking into their GM vehicle and then contacting GM OnStar and saying, Hey, uh, can I get the data that, that you've got on me? And basically saying, uh, no, uh, and meanwhile, if you get a GM executive on stage at an industry event, they will say, oh, the, the customer owns the data. Okay, but the customer can't get access to the data. So th- th- there seems to be a, a little bit of a missing uh, bit of code uh, to, to get this straight in the industry. And the other thing that's missing that's on your phone, uh, so at least BMW is giving me a website where I will eventually be able to initiate privacy to various uh, partners of theirs. Uh, I think some people want a button in the car that can just turn the connection off when they want it turned off. But I don't think even Tesla will give you that. Yeah. Let me, let me jump into that. We had one of the questions we had from the audience uh, said, uh, what's the value of all this data? Does anyone want to guess the value of it is in a car. I think McKinsey uh, said it's $850 billion. Yeah, I, I, I will certainly tell you it's greatly overestimated by some of the people <laughs> yeah. who come up with numbers, but I can't say I have an accurate number. I just know that their numbers are much too high. There's this phrase that goes on, data is the new oil, which I'm sure the oil industry doesn't find very attractive as a phrase. Uh, it's not. Data is not the new oil. Data, data are useful, uh, and people are going to use them. And I, I actually must say the one thing about DSRC I do like is the ephemerality you described. If the government were to play a role in this, it would be nice if they were to mandate more ephemerality of some of this data. Yeah, I think I'm just going to say the misconception about the value of vehicle data is that uh, car companies uh, think it's a question of just peddling uh, individual vehicle data. The real value comes from aggregating data uh, with 
with which people have presumably opted in to share, and there's uh, anonymization, et cetera, but new value propositions created from that data because there's valuable information to be had, uh, presumably a lot of it associated with uh, safety and collision the, avoidance. The common misperception actually is that your personal data is valuable. It's worth pennies, maybe a few bucks, yeah. your personal data. It is only the large collections which are of value to anybody. And a lot of people have said, why do we make them pay us for our data? Uh, no, if you got paid the value of your data, you'd, you'd wish you'd never asked for that. <laughs> well, well, this person, by the way, uh, threw out a number and said, it, is it worth $35,000 per car per individual? And I guess... Uh, you know, Brad, you, you, you'd say it's worth much less than that. Well, it's funny. when At Google, when we started, if it was first revealed we were making a car, because Google is at its heart an advertising company, a lot of people came in and said, oh, so are you making this car so you can give rides for free and just show ads to people while they drive around? Mm -hmm. And right now, operating a car costs about $20 an hour. And even the most effective advertising platforms in the world make about $1.50 an hour from someone's time. Uh, unless they're like for super rich people or something like that. So that would definitely be the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. Uh, I was going to bring on one of our, one of the people in the audience who is already sending a lot of notes and who is on our, who was an honorary shark last week, uh, 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 Kara Cockleman. Jeremiah, can you uh, uh, make Kara live? Yeah, we need someone who likes DSRC. So please come in, Kara. I'm not, you know, I not I'll let her speak for herself. I, my guess is she likes DSRC for certain narrow uses, but uh, I'm not sure where well, she is. Well, I guess... Uh... Well, we're going to have the equivalent of, of DSRC functionality when uh, CV to X is more widely uh, deployed. Uh, cellular, cellular V2X. Cellular, yeah, when, cellular when it V2X. May, you mean if it shows up in phones, not in cars? No, it shows up in cars. In cars, too. In Ford, car. Ford, Ford tar, uh, starting in 2022. Because uh, what I've floated, but the FCC has so far not found it interesting, is that they should, in fact, return the 5.9 gigahertz spectrum back to open use. Or no, actually, never was. would make it open use like Wi-Fi, which is the proposal, or the proposals to do half of it. But just mandate that every mobile device, including phones that wants to use that spectrum, implement a, a, a car protocol. And that would actually get you short-range car messages going on yeah. between every car within three years, as opposed to dv uh, x won't be deployed for a decade or two to all cars. Okay, we maybe we have Kara. Yeah. Uh, we do have Well, we have Kara's picture. Jeremiah, turn on her voice as well. Yeah, Kara, I have a microphone, but um, I don't have any other questions other than those I've put in the chat box. Okay. Can you, can you oh, say them? So can you, say can them. you tell them what they are? Because we yeah. don't see them. Yeah, we don't oh, always I'm see so all the checkbox. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I was. I, I heard some of you responding. I know that Brad, for example, must have seen something because he responded dead on. Um, Brad, are you able to see the chat box? Yeah, I can see it. It's just when we're going like we're going, we don't always read six windows at once. And I apologize. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You were saying that the vehicle data is redundant to the phone data. Well, that was one of the minor things I said. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel the vehicle data is very different? I know if it's an electric vehicle, they like to know when it's charging, and that helps for research and planning, you know, design of future electric vehicles. But what's so special about the, the vehicle that uh, you want to keep connected to it? Uh, there is a second use for electric vehicles, by the way, which is it's a, in the long-term plan of most electric grids to be able to tell electric cars when to charge. Now, that can be a one-way communication so that they don't all immediately start charging at the same time and you can balance the grid by telling the cars when they charge and when they don't. So that's a that's a actually pretty strong use of, again, uh, not uh, live connectivity, but uh, you know, the, being having a cell phone or Wi-Fi in the car. Usually, yeah, that's local. Um, so they're not speaking to the cloud when they want to know. They're watching at the second-by-second second level for the grid stability um, to decide when to, to charge. And, and, yeah, we have papers on that. Um, so that's a very local connectivity, I think, need. Actually, most of the plans I've seen have involved uh, the communication going over general Internet, including uh, the cell phone version of it. Uh, but there are some ones that work directly with EVSE. Did you feel we weren't addressing the uh, efficacy of DSRC for collision avoidance sufficiently? 
Well, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. I think Surya said there's just no way that it can be used to avoid collisions. Um, and I've heard that in really congested settings that it just doesn't uh, run fast enough uh, for collision avoidance when there's a lot of basic safety messages trying to transfer, but I, I'm not sure. Well, even if it were able to get all the messages through, uh, the main thing it's valuable for would be detecting potential collisions with what they'll call occluded vehicles, something that's blocked by a building or a big minivan in front of you. And those collisions do happen, and you could learn something about them. But it's a relatively minor use case compared to all the other use cases out there. Well, I've always thought, and this is for long-term self-driving as well, that you would have a third uh, reader up above, and so those occluded cases would be avoided um, at corners and such, and, and that would be very helpful at intersections, for example, where there tend to be a lot of collisions, that it would read that. Usually you have to have line of sight for DSRC. Uh, it can bounce a little bit, but uh, no, actually, I'm totally with you. Uh, I think the simplest thing would be to take the most dangerous uh, controlled intersections in the United States or in any country and put a little camera on that sees if someone's running the red light and turns all the lights red in all directions when that happens. And that would actually signal every car, not just the ones with DSRC, that there's a potential intersection collision, and it would do a lot more. But it isn't the easiest thing to do at those intersections is to slow down and yeah. maybe take away some of the occlusions. I mean, come on. Yeah, I that's mean, like saying just say no to drugs. To say that we're, we're, well, yeah, but but there you're, the objective, I think, is better to take the human out of the loop. No, it's and not. And so yeah. on. So uh, I, I don't know. Whatever. Well, the, the fundamental significance here, uh, and we haven't really got gotten uh, into the 5G conversation, uh, but 5G will introduce vehicle-to-vehicle communications as an inherent part of the wireless connection, the cellular connection in the car, which is a game changer for the industry. Suddenly, that annoying and very expensive connected vehicle proposition, which is a cash sink and a, a, a source of cost for most car makers suddenly becomes not only a, an opportunity for customer engagement and retention, but collision avoidance and safety. So safety <laughs> becomes relevant. And, and oh, Brad, you I, 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 I want to uh, disagree. Really? Oh, this is right. what you want to do? This is how you want to do collision avoidance? We've gone through 130 years of this car with collision avoidance without this kind of communications where, where the control system in the vehicle is doing it uh, by itself, looking around at the environment and then stopping from so you're, crashing. You're opposed, wait, you're, Alan, you're opposed to cellular V2X communications? You're opposed to no, it? No, I, I would do it, but not, not, to, not to do collision well, I'm, I'm opposed to them. Not to do. I mean, I mean, what? Uh, th- that's better than putting intelligence in the vehicle and 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 not going and and hitting something and staying between the lanes, really. And you're going to and you have to have all the vehicles out there doing it. You don't I mean, have to do it, anything. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm really. So what are you going to use it for? If, if it's going to be to be able to coordinate between two vehicles, the probability has to be that each of them have it. So well, you of have course. to multiply those probabilities yeah. together. That's right. So it's the square okay. of the so, penetration is this percentage of chance. Absolutely. Percent. I, but I don't understand sure. what your gentlemen are talking about because we're going to be putting 5G devices in cars. In new vehicles, to, yeah. Put them. Yes, exactly. But you yeah. use it for whatever other things you want to do. But, but, but the, so the, 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 the reason is the graphic I have behind me here, right? It's uh, the thing we teach people in computer security is the same thing you teach children. Don't talk to strangers. The idea sure. that you're going to be exchanging messages with, uh, you know, every car you encounter. That's just a crazy idea. Yeah, but it's it's a comes with idea. You'd have to delete the capability from from 5G in the future. If they give me a car like that, I'm going to try and cut that wire. Now, it wouldn't be a wire because, as you say, (laughs) it, it would be integrated into it. No, it's a terrible computer security idea, and the benefit is meager. And almost all that benefit, in fact, that benefit is achieved in a better sense, just by the fact that cheap sensor technology and cheap perception technology is being developed in the self-driving industry and will make it available for a lower cost that vehicles can perceive all the non-occluded obstacles on the road. So that leaves only the occluded ones. And there's just not enough of them to justify the, the security risk we're talking about. Need a little parsimony here, you know. Where's a parsimonious solution? Uh, uh, (laughs) Dick, let's go on to some other. Let's get Neil and so on in here. We could go on on this topic for an hour, but let me. uh, uh, We have Neil Peterson just joined us. Neil is uh, executive director of Transportation Research Board and has all. uh, We don't have time to talk about all the other things he's done, 
Uh, Neil, do you have any comments or questions or, or uh, corrections for this group? Thanks, Dick. So um, I have several things I could talk about, but I, I, I want to start with one of uh, Michael's points that he made in the introduction where uh, he was really saying that what the public sector's motivation was was primarily control. And I guess having spent most of my yes. public sector and uh, really knowing what my colleagues are trying to do, especially within state DOTs, their motivation is almost 100% driven by safety. And I've actually been a little bit disappointed that I have not heard a lot more discussion about safety in the discussion that we've had uh, thus far. Um, Alan makes the point that you're not going to uh, be able to have connectivity everywhere, and therefore we have to be relying on uh, automated vehicles uh, being able to drive without uh, connectivity. And he's absolutely right. But at the same time, connectivity can provide a lot of additional information to the vehicles that can help improve uh, safety. And I think that's really where the public sector is coming from in terms of their major motivation. Can you tell me which what this lot of information you're referring to is? Because I've studied oh, well, hard and I cannot find it. No, well, let, let me. Let, I think truckers use CBs to get information back and forth for the last what seventy five years. Okay, there 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 has been a a, a communications. There is some certain amount of information that you'd like to know about the road ahead. Of course, have sensors that detect uh, that detect slippery conditions and make that available to the vehicles behind you. If a bridge is out, of course, make it available. Well, but this okay. is the kind of in- okay. This is really <laughs> valuable information. So, all right, Alan, I I, think- I, I, I I don't know if Neil's seen the video of the Taiwan Tesla crash and and. I think Brad has, but he hasn't written up his analysis of it yet. But I dare say if if uh, if Tesla uh, had made some kind of provision uh, for a service to be provided by that highway, say it's a, an intelligent highway system where that camera uh, – and it wouldn't take that much sophistication – to be, ident- be able to identify a massive truck having overturned blocking that lane and to send messages to all uncom- incoming cars, there is a truck – blocking the lane on this highway uh, so you don't have to worry about using your sensors this is exactly where the truck is you need to slow down mr very sophisticated tesla computer automated driving system uh you don't have to rely on yeah well of course course maybe maybe tesla will not provide that Okay, recognizing that they don't have it in there. They should have recognized it with the Joshua Brown crash. They should have justified it when the first one of these things. This does not require a Wi-Fi 802.11p Wi-Fi Right, I'm talking cellular. I'm talking cellular connection. If you're talking vehicle cloud, of course vehicle cloud has already happened. It's it's in my car in ways already. Uh, But you were just dismissing it, Brett. No, no, no. I'm not dismissing. Sorry, I'm not dismissing vehicle to cloud. Of course, you want to learn from the cloud that there is a problem on the road up ahead of you. Of course, you want to learn uh, that the road is out or that there's a slippery ice or anything else can be protected from you. But you get that by communicating with your headquarters. You don't get it by asking the government to set up a network to do that. You don't. I mean, the government can contribute data to the cloud. It already does. Now you're talking about DSRC again, sounds like. No. Okay. well, I'm or CV to X. What I'm talking about is that, uh, yes, you want safety data from the cloud. Now, that Tesla, on the other hand, well, obviously, it would be nice if it had known there was a truck across the road and it had stopped because of that before it even saw it. Um, it, it would be unacceptable for a self-driving car to have the perception of the current Tesla. The current Tesla is an ADAS system. It expects a driver to be monitoring. It doesn't recognize the tops of trucks because it's never seen the top of a truck in its training. Now, by the way, I should mention, we have not confirmed that the autopilot was on for that accident, so uh, I'm not ready to condemn autopilot having failed there. It's a strong but it does it, it does <laughs> fail in situations like that, and uh, that is because it is an ADAS system. It is not expected mm-hmm. to succeed in those situations. But when you eventually <laughs> want to be a full self-driving car, which Tesla does want to be, in fact, Elon Musk said he'd be releasing that in 2019, uh, when you get to that level, then obviously it is unacceptable to have to depend in any way on communications to know there is a truck across the road in front of you. I'd like to, I'd like to respond to, to Neil. And I, uh, his I was question, about to ask you, too. His <laughs> issue, 
his issue is that we we haven't discussed safety and i think we have neil we've we have been discussing safety it's not a question of of whether the oems or whether service providers or anybody is in favor or not in favor of safety it's it's how that is implemented and the solutions that have been provided right now and it, and also the issue of of control that we've we've discussed the issue is whether the the government agencies whether they're road authorities or nationalist national authorities or local authorities whether it's the responsibility of those authorities to collect manage and distribute messages or if that can better be done by a range of systems some of them are public some of them are are private that can be provided to everyone using systems that are developed by the industry as opposed to systems that are mandated by the government that's the issue that was my point okay but there there is certainly data that government can be providing that is going to help make the entire system uh safer as a result yes absolutely nobody's nobody's even addressed the issue of intersections where a very large portion of crashes take place today and if vehicles can be getting traffic signal data being transmitted in real time to them so that they know when traffic signals are going to be changing that can be a game changer in terms of intersection or, or the integration of cameras that could identify a car that's not stopping yes yeah, those, been, those have been, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, those have been outlawed in certain states and in certain countries as, a, as, a, as an inhibitor or, 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 or something that is, is, is not. Oh, you're talking about a red light camera. That's a little different. Yeah. That's different. I, yeah. That's what I, I, I've said. We can, our cars today, every car that's built can be made to stop at a red light. It can be made to stop at a red light. It will never go through a red light. It will never go through a stop sign. They can be made to stop. Just like every car today can be can be made to in, impede anyone who's who is over a limit of alcohol or drug content for even starting from even starting the car, I've said many times we we know how many of accidents and deaths are caused by alcohol related alcohol and drug usage. It's over. Tw- that's some, next, in some instances, that's, it's huge. That's the next so debate, you're, you're, not you're, this one. Are yeah. You're arguing again for more. Uh, uh, federal or, or, or national mandates on these things. Is that right? That's, that's not a system mandate. That's, that is, that's, a, that's a different kind of a mandate. It's not mandating what, system, what kind of systems are putting in the vehicle. In this case, it's the infrastructure that, that we need to work with. Sorry, go ahead, Brett. Well, the government can provide data, and there is data that got government provide. And I've mentioned yes. Waze a couple of times, but I think the story of Waze is a fascinating one because cities and governments all around the world were trying to measure traffic in their cities, trying to get data on what was going on, where accidents were. They spent millions and millions of dollars trying to put inductive loops in the roads to, to or cameras on every highway to count the cars and bought all those car counting systems you see at the ITS conferences. And then a couple of guys in Tel Aviv put together a free app and give it out and Suddenly, they've got the traffic data on the whole world. Uh, It just tells you the efficacy of the different approaches. Not to say that governments can't and shouldn't provide data, but they may not be the ones to depend on getting it to you as quickly as you can. I'm not not arguing that, by the way. More data that the public sector can be providing, the safer we're going to make the conditions. And we we ought to be uh, trying to facilitate data from the infrastructure that can be provided to the vehicle so that the vehicle can be operating not just based on their sensor, sensor data. That's my point. Well, I, I, I want to clarify one sort of point of confusion, and that is uh, it is true that uh, some DOTs are shifting from DSRC to CV to X technology, but uh, more importantly, perhaps the cellular networks themselves are shifting to CV to X and then will evolve to 5G release 16 over a period of a few years, and many of them are putting in microcells, so de facto uh, infrastructure without public funding, and uh, so uh, the ability to to uh, have uh, infrastructure support will be coming from the private sector. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a DSRC deployment, uh, which would be tens of billions of dollars to do in the U.S. Anyway, um, I do want to I do want to make. Uh, 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 
take another make, exception make, to make something. Make it very brief because we need I'm, to move yeah, 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 Can we get Let's Let's have some Neil, of our Neil, Neil, conversation began to talk about state DOTs and, and, what, and what do they really want to do. Cynthia Jones is a senior executive at, at, at uh, Ohio DOT, very active in technology, very active at TRB, uh, and she may have an opinion. Cynthia? Absolutely. Um, thank you very much, um, Dick and Neil. Uh, couldn't agree more. So in Ohio, we absolutely want safety. Um, and we believe that that is supported by having standards and op interoperability. Um, we have joined some coalitions and are working with some other states like in the Connected Vehicle Pooled Fund, which is uh, has more than two dozen other states, and then the Smart Belt Coalition. I guess to our eyes, if we can get in with a number of other states and build some consistency in the applications and how things will be used, we believe that that will encourage OEMs to make the investment and, and have that be accessible. We're also in, very interested in ground and air, you know, having safety and technology, but we're actually technology agnostic. So DSRC or CV to X, we, we want to have the system that will have data and we don't intend to mandate it. Um, so we're working with those other states, but we have invested in a statewide standards framework. So dealing with MPOs and IPS architecture integration, doing system and software requirements and CONOPS just to help build somewhat of a framework that can be open and support connectivity. And I would say, absolutely, we look forward to private investment in helping with connectivity because we can't afford to do it all, but we absolutely value the impact and the spread of that to support the safety case. And, and, and any, any comments or reactions to that? I mean, that's, that's not talking about the OEMs very much. Well, the, the OEMs, I've, the OEMs have, as I said, have invested an enormous amount of money. There isn't a single OEM that I know of today that does not have a system in their vehicle which is capable of communicating out and taking communications in. All of, this, all of the OEMs now are connected. They have the ability to process messages. They have the ability to send data to wherever the data needs to be and to receive messages that can be processed and used in their systems. That, con that connectivity is there, and it's to be used. Developing parallel standards, developing parallel processes and parallel methods is, in, in my view, it's a waste of time. Use more, the systems, use more, the systems more, that are more in the vehicle. More, more fundamentally, and I think you would agree with this, Michael, there's no business model for DSRC for the automakers. There's no uh, business you know, model. Irrespective of DSRC, whether it's DSRC or cellular V2X, it doesn't make any difference to me. There's no business model for the, for the OEMs to be involved in putting systems in their vehicles that do one thing. I mean, it's, the systems are there now to be able to communicate all kinds of messages, whether it's emergency e-call or roadside assistance or theft notification or tracking or open the car so that somebody can put food in the back in the trunk. All of those things are, are, are capable, the systems are capable of doing today. And they go further than that. They're able to process data and BMW is a leader in this field to be able to send data, traffic flow data, traffic information data, and then use that data in, in processing information. And as we expand this, the systems that are, used, that are used now, for example, Google is now coming into the vehicle, not as an app, but as a, as a full integration, as an operating system, pluses and minuses that, and I've written both of those. But with, with that capability, we have many more opportunities to provide the information that the vehicles and the customers need. Hi, Michael, are you saying the connectivity problem solved? It's been solved for 20 years. Okay. It's just it's just that that that. I'm many, glad you didn't say people, that, that. That is your first comment. <laughs> many people want want many people want another another solution. The solution is there. It's being it's in it's in the vehicles, and it's gone from two G to three G to four G, and very soon we'll be into five G systems in the vehicles that'll be able to do all kinds of other things. And that's those, that progression has gone through from, from the first system, the AMPS system that the General Motors and OnStar put okay, in. Okay, let's not go too far back are. in time let's, here. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's have Baruch come in and... Yeah, yeah, let's, uh, we got, Baruch, we got, yeah, we, 
Officially, we 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 close in one hour. Yeah, but let's come on, Berg. Going, but uh, Baruch Feigenbaum, do you have from Reason Foundation? Uh, I, I'm sure you have something to say. I do, I do. Um, but I'm going to try to behave myself and, and ask a general question, going back to the data and the security. And it seems like I know as we've been talking along, Roger's been saying that if we don't have security, if we have issues with uh, people's data being stolen, that's going to be a barrier to implementation. And I tend to agree with that. If you look at the government agencies, nobody trusts them to have data. But even some of the private companies, Google and Apple, the acceptance of them having data has sort of decreased as people have found out what information they have. And so and I, I agree with Brad that the less they have, the better. But we still need some level of security there. And I don't know that I've seen a good plan that shows how this data is going to be secure. And so I'm wondering if there's a plan and also about the idea of whether people can control their own data. We've talked about how when they start out, automated vehicles are going to be shared, we think. And so the question is, in a shared vehicle, who is going to have access to that data and who's going to own it? A very big problem. And we already have this problem with Uber, right? Everyone rides in an Uber. Uber gets a record of where you go. They pull in your credit card. Michael, are you muted? I, I don't. I don't drive. I don't ride an Uber. Oh. Well, okay. So yeah. not everyone does it. I don't it, do but Google. It, I don't use Waze. <laughs> but so, you use uh, Copilot. <laughs> yes. And and uh, do you have a, so you don't have a Google phone? You don't have uh, nope. an app. Okay. Well, so, uh, the, and I'm one of the tinfoil hat people sometimes in my life too, but unfortunately we're a minority and most people actually do uh, give in to these things. And so it is a big challenge. And uh, actually there's, you know, obviously there's a battle that goes on whether the European approach to this is the right approach or whether uh, uh, the American non-approach is the right approach. But uh, this, this is a battle that exists outside of automotive. With regard to uh, uh, vehicle security, I, I want to, take some exception to Brad's suggestion that uh, DSRC is uh, a, a, a massive vulnerability. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that there aren't vulnerabilities to DSRC or, or any connectivity proposition, but I would submit that uh, no car can be certifiably secure without a connection, actually. Uh, that's not to say it's not a challenge to solve the vehicle security issue. You're, you're putting it, Baruch, and the question of data security, uh, which is a slightly different question. Um, all, all I would say about that is that, you know, we, we have the auto ISAC in the U.S. They're working on that problem every day. Meanwhile, there are hackers in China like Keen Security working every day to bust through. Uh, and there are ethical and non-ethical hackers all over the world uh, actually suddenly more interested in cars than they ever were. Uh, so it's uh, it, it cars are now on the battlefield of uh, data security and uh, of uh, vehicle security or system security, uh, but I but I don't think we achieve that security without connectivity. I think we uh, have to leverage connectivity to achieve security. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say that a completely disconnected car is fairly safe from computer intrusion. Uh, you know, the, the, just, your, old just... your, your old 57 Chevy <laughs> is, is probably not going to be taken over uh, by, through the Internet. But I'm saying minimal connectivity, connectivity only to headquarters, and even that put under great scrutiny. Connectivity to other random, I mean, it, when you work on the Internet, the whole reason, it's not actually impossible to secure a computer on the Internet that doesn't talk to it's it's the problem is servers and things that take connections from everywhere or things that visit every website these are the things that are vulnerable cars that exchange messages with every piece of roadside equipment and every other car they encounter that's what's vulnerable i i think as we titled uh, this session we titled it uh, connectivity uh, everybody's in favor of it um, uh, the question is is uh, what are the details and what are some of the nuances and what are some of the uh, aspects of it that that would allow it to, um, to actually uh, go out and deliver the, all the values and benefits that all of us have been talking about. So I think that um, uh, we are actually making progress in all this. And, um, and uh, I think I'll give you one, I'll give you one success story. So way back at the beginning of our conversation, I talked about what we really need is a market driven approach, consumer demand for connectivity. And uh, there are some green shoots out there and I'll, I'll give you one example. So GM Super Cruise. So if you want to use Super Cruise, which is sort of a fancy cruise control, uh, geofenced to a couple hundred thousand miles of highway, uh, 
turns out people love that feature, which is only available, I think, today on one or two uh, GM vehicles. But very soon, within a year or two, will be available on 22 GM vehicles. And I do love the debate as to whether Super Cruise should be added to the Corvette. You know, is that somehow antithetical? But you don't get Super Cruise. It doesn't work without an OnStar subscription. Uh, so now we're start, and they've, they've found that, uh, I believe they claim, and of course it's in their interest to so claim at GM, that 85% of Super Cruise users, Cruise Super Cruise users would not buy another vehicle without Super Cruise. So that suggests a demand driven value proposition for a vehicle connection. I think that's worthy of some note. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point to close great. on. Again, yes, we'll, we'll be back good. right at, firstly, this thing closes on the hour uh we'll be back afterwards to keep on talking fred do you want to lose it out sure dick a great discussion this has been everyone's for connectivity but we will be back with more most likely later this month and welcome your thoughts about topics and participants you can find us at zoom-tank.com and at smartdrivingcar.com don't forget the automated vehicles symposium is still slated for the end of july in san diego the info is at automatedvehiclessymposium.org. Thank you for taking part, and we hope you stay healthy and safe 